0: Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspire. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, is my good buddy Dan.
1: Dan, how's it going? It's going really, really well, Dwayne. It's been a been a, been an exciting week. It's been a long time since I've been this excited to talk about a comic book movie. Mm-hmm. This weekend, we were finally able to get out to theaters. We got to see James Gunn third and for now, final Guardians of the Galaxy film. There's absolutely no shortage of things to talk about with this one. Are, <laughs> no. are you ready for this, Dwayne? The, I mean, we got
0: to get ready because, yeah, there was a lot of movie to get through so we're gonna jump in quick to comic book news and in fact we're just gonna kind of streamline this this week no no future mc mcu news right now or any comic book stuff we'll briefly mention what's new on marvel unlimited with this week and there is a lot of different number ones available this week seven new number one books are being are becoming available on Mar- marvel unlimited for the first time is there one that jumps out to you that you're interested in looking at, Dan?
1: Definitely. Uh, anytime Jed McKay has something new coming out, going to be a exciting mm-hmm. day. So Doctor Strange number one, which is the reboot coming out of the events of Strange, which came out of the events of the death of Doctor Strange, which came out of the events of Doctor Strange, <laughs> is now relaunching. And I think all of that was done by McKay. Should be a lot of fun. We also yes. got a new Moon Knight in stores last week, number 23. Yep. And on Marvel Unlimited, number twenty arrives this coming week. So, for Moon Knight fans, there's a lot going on as well.
0: Yes, definitely. Uh, Venom, Blade, Silver Surfer, a bunch of others have number ones coming out this week. So, lots of different uh, things to look at if if you're uh, looking for something new in Marvel Unlimited. So, absolutely. All right, Dan. We've looked at Marvel Unlimited. Do you have a recommendation for us this week?
1: Absolutely. So it's it's a time of barbarians. It's actually been a really good time to be a sword and sorcery fan these last few years. And just recently, there's two cool new titles that came out. Images The Last Barbarians by Brian Haberlin and friends follows a group of adventurers who are trying to get this boy that they call The Vessel safely to his destination. And The Mighty Barbarians from Ablaze is sort of this League of Extraordinary Fantasy Fighters uh, that features a bunch of different IP characters of old, like Cole, Morgan Le Fay, Nanook of the North, uh, and others. That one's by Michael Marici and Gassipi Gaffaro, with Barbara Nisenzo and Jim Campbell. Marici, if you'll remember, is the one who was doing that Barbarian book that I liked so much earlier this year. Yes. Interesting note, I only got to read Last Barbarian because I accidentally stole it from my friend Ken, who shares a a pull pile with me. And I thought it was my barbarian book and it was his barbarian book. So sorry, Ken, I'll get that back to you sometime. With that out of the way, I think we dive
0: into talking about guardians of the galaxy volume three, which is the brand new movie. So this right here is your spoiler warning. We are going to talk at great length about the movie, everything that happens, character development, characters, dying, Characters almost dying, all that sort of thing. So if you have not seen the new movie that just went into theaters this this past weekend, stop the recording. Go watch the film, then come back and and join us for a an in-depth discussion about the movie because uh I don't think you want this
1: spoiled. This was this was a fantastic movie. If you're listening to this podcast, you don't want this spoiled. If you're taking no. the time to, to watch to, to listen to a podcast about comic book movies you need to go and watch this comic book movie
0: and with that let's jump in and talk about the film facts for guardians of the galaxy volume three the tagline for the film is it's time to face the music the movie was released may 5th 2023 it has a runtime of 150 minutes so far, box office take Thursday through Sunday, it has grossed $282.1 million worldwide. Domestically, US and Canada, more specifically, it has grossed $114 million, which is actually the second highest grossing weekend, opening weekend in 2023. Super Mario Brothers actually has the largest uh, US and Canada opening weekend at $146 million. All this on a movie budget of $250 million. It has an IMDb rating, 8.4 out of 10. The movie stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Batista, Palm Clay Fiet, Karen Gilliam, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, Will Poulter, and Chuck Wooji Ivooji. The movie was written... And directed by James Gunn. So those are your film facts for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. And Dan, do I, boy, do I have a challenge for you! You get to try and recap everything that happened here, and I, I'm I'm definitely not going to hold you to the two minutes
1: for this. Yeah, this is a, this is a disaster. It's actually not a disaster. It's awesome, but it's amazing yes. how much happens. Like how many different scenes and settings and places and characters that we're going to be seeing so i'm gonna drop these into sort of individual little packets of a couple minutes or so we're gonna talk about them and then continue on so we'll do right i'm gonna i'm gonna do my two minute recap i'm just gonna do it four times <laughs> there we go is that cheating so it, <laughs> no no it's no, not the way no 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 all right so let's let's go ahead and get started. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 starts out with a custom Marvel title sequence. It's filled with all sorts of previous Guardians moments, after which we are immediately dropped into an adorable litter of baby raccoons. Things aren't great for these little critters, though, because a hand is closing in and one adorable baby animal is about to be grabbed. As that happens, we see his face morph into Rockets. who's sitting listening to Quill's Zune kind of want to step out in the middle of nowhere. By nowhere, I mean the actual head of a god nowhere where the Guardians have been setting up base recently, including in the holiday special. Relatively quickly, the team actually ends up being attacked by a super-powered attacker from space. The rocket is badly injured in their battle. Uh, the attacker actually is this gold-covered creature called Warlock, and he essentially is the character who'd been sort of introduced by the massive cocoon that we saw at the end of the last movie. As Nebula tries to save Rocket, who's been badly injured during the battle, she actually finds, or they find, a kill switch in his body that prevents them from doing any invasive medical procedures, including life-saving help, because, in essence, Rocket is a piece of patented technology that whoever made didn't want being messed with. We then flash back to Rocket's time in a lab sort of prism with fennel animals who are being experimented on, they include Tiefs, Floor, and Lila, who become his friends. We next learn that the Sovereign and Warlock are creations of a being called the High Evolutionary, who is also the one that was experimenting on Rocket. He now wants Rocket back, He sent Warlock to get him, and he's angry when Warlock returns and has failed to bring back his property as he'd commanded him to. Meanwhile, the Guardians have found evidence that Rocket's kill switch was made at a company called OrgoCorp.
0: Yes, that was was the setup for this whole film. I I was a bit surprised that we had basically Rocket get injured right away because I felt like this movie was going to be... Very Rocket-centric. And in fact, actually, this ended up being a really great storytelling method because interposed with the things that were going on in the present with the Guardians trying to save Rocket, we were getting these flashbacks and seeing how Rocket came to be who he is way, way back when and and his
1: uh, time with the High Evolutionary. It's almost like he's in a dream state. But you're right, it's it's weird that there's no real question that this is Rocket's movie. It's Rocket's yes. story. Yes. And he spends most of it unconscious and right. nearly dead. Yeah. So that's not exactly what you would have expected going in. But it does work really well. So, yes, it does. So what did you think other than that? There was there was not a whole lot of time to sit down and get your popcorn Hopefully you weren't late getting into the movie because they they dropped you in, it's title sequence, it's a bit of music, and then boom, Adam Warlock is on the attack.
0: I I will say this, I was was almost ready for it because we had, unlike the first two films, where we had this really upbeat sort of opening title sequence and opening credits... We had a an acoustic version of the song Creep by Radiohead, which is a very kind of, uh, very, very kind of, um, I'm trying to think of the word, it's uh, subdued, very yep. subdued, especially compared to the opening title sequences of the first two. And, it, and it's focusing on Rocket. He, he, he's listening to the Zune, he's walking, he's first sitting and then walking around nowhere. And you just sort of feel like this feels like the calm before a storm is going to hit, and literally almost right after the uh, the uh, yeah, that opening scene, we have Adam Warlock come busting into nowhere and, and attacking to try and get Rocket, and, and he gets hurt and and sets sets the whole thing in motion.
1: Incidentally, by the way. There is a small additional thing that I didn't talk about where for whatever reason, it appears Peter Quill starts the thing in sort of fat Thor mode where he's just yes. sitting around drinking, feeling sorry for himself. This happens. He's he's so drunk he can't stand. Ten minutes uh-huh. later, a battle starts and he hops out of bed and starts shooting. <laughs> and there's never anything made the rest of the movie of this you know, that, that he was just suffering that way. quick transformation, yeah. He's just yeah. completely back to, to normal. Maybe a little whinier than normal, but basically back to normal the rest of the movie, which right. I find is a little strange. What it did give us, though, that I think is very interesting is one of the most ominous sequences in the trailers yes. was watching um, Nebula carrying Peter Quill out from someplace with all of the guardians walking along next to them yeah and it looked like probably peter quill this is i think where the peter quill is gonna die rumor comes from and instead he's he's just dead drunk he's passed out yeah he is
0: drunk and cannot stand much less walk what i do
1: wish i'd done is gone back and looked at that earlier because as and even in the original the original trailers if you really look at rocket raccoon He's just walking along, sipping on his milk from his milk carton while mm-hmm. they're walking, which would be highly inappropriate for like some, you know, <laughs> yeah. a funeral if they type were situation, like, mourning the so, loss of Star Wars. Yeah, All so right. they kind of gave it away, but but I think that was the most interesting thing is that that ended up being very good at misdirection for them.
0: Yes. I, I've got some information about that particular scene that we'll talk about a little bit later that I found out about in, right. in researching this. But why don't you go
1: on and, and continue the recap? Sure. With the help of the Ravagers and Gamora, Gamora is actually hanging out with the Ravagers now, not with the Guardians. Because this is, of course, a different Gamora from a different dimension or a different time they help to infiltrate this weird organic-slash-biological headquarters of the Orgocorp, and they steal Rocket's genetic records with the help of a scientist named Yura, who may or may not have been into Peter. Unfortunately, the key they need to save their friend has been removed just recently from the records, and they realize that they actually need to head for the High Evolutionary's headquarters to get the key from his lieutenant's computer in his head. While this is all going on, we continue to get Rocket flashbacks every once in a while, during which we see that he continues to be experimented on, and he's becoming increasingly intelligent. It gets to the point where eventually he even solves a problem that was beyond the high evolutionary himself. This both interests and sort of infuriates the evolutionary, who then decides that although Rocket is a failed experiment like his friends, He's going to incinerate his friends, but Rocket he's going to dissect to take a look at his brain. This does not sound good at all, so Rocket decides to plan an escape. He's actually been grabbing little parts from various things while he's been out of his cage uh, previously. And he assembles a a lockpick that allows them to get out of their cage. And they're going to run away and fly away into the sky on a rocket like he'd always wanted to do. Unfortunately, though, as he's unlocking it, the evolutionary finds them, he kills Lila, and then in the fight with Rocket, he actually kills both of his other friends as well. So Rocket's very angry, he tears into High Evolutionary's face, and eventually makes his escape. But he does so alone, having lost all the people he cares about.
0: That is that is such a rough set of scenes, particularly that the the uh, the final sort of uh back uh flashback scene where we had where we see rocket getting basically just an undressing by the evolutionary like how are you so smart why were you able to figure this mm-hmm. out this that and the other thing and he's like and then he then he lets them in because they've been dreaming about going to this new world and that that's where we see the clip of the four of them laying on the ground talking about you know going to this special world uh, the the, the new world that 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 the high evolutionary is going to create and he's like yeah you you all are monstrosities you're you're just test subjects to get me to the the real perfect uh creatures that uh that that i was able to create now that you were able to figure out the problem that i i couldn't mm-hmm. fix with their aggression and and then just that just he gets Layla out, and then she gets shot, and it's just oh, it's so gut wrenching. The whole, the whole thing. I, I wanted Rocket to like kill him right then and there, but it's like, well, there's still over an hour plus of movie. Yeah. That's obviously not going to
1: happen. But oh goodness sakes! Yeah, was there was there anyone who was affected by that scene in your uh, in your theater by any chance? Because uh, pretty much the entire row. I was, I think, in probably most of the theater, but I could only really see the, the row I was in. It was, it was super tough. There, there, in some ways, almost should have been, a like, a, a warning on this. Because I think for people who really are passionate about or sympathetic to animals and animal yeah. pain, there was some bad stuff going on. My wife cried through, like, half of the movie. Every time that the poor little animals even came on the screen, she was, she was not doing well. And right. so... The, there was a lot there it was very powerful i think one of the things about it is that to an extent i like the fact that even just a little ways into the film less than half the way into the film you knew that no one was ever going to root for the high evolutionary this was no. not a guy who's going to be redeemed this is not a guy who was going to come back and be the hero right everyone in the theater wanted him dead and would be perfectly happy to see whatever happened to him you know it's yeah. it's really kind of strange because I was, I was talking to somebody and and just said that you know when you look at most of the other marvel villains they have ideas that in a certain context might be taken as something that's that's justified uh-huh. and then they take it a bit far or whatever you know You've got your people who wander around unironically with the Thanos' right mugs, you know? Right. I cannot imagine anybody walking around with a, the high evolutionary was right mug and not just being shunned by all of society, right? Right. Yeah, because no. this guy's just awful. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. and I
0: actually was like... I was really impressed with how well the character was written and how well the character was acted because he really did not seem like like you you kind of knew that something was up with him but like you I don't feel like you knew for sure exactly how evil this guy was until about that scene like it was at that point it's like the, the the wheels sort of kind of came off there and it's like oh god yep
1: he's that sort of very quiet evil that sometimes seems like it's reasonable until you realize that no he's just truly insane evil. yes so and, and and then he
0: starts talking and saying crazy things and then you're like oh oh okay that's what's going on here
1: yep we also get a number of scenes showing us how broken Peter is because of losing Gamora. And we begin to understand just how much the new Gamora really is a different person than the character we knew. She has no interest in Quill, she has no interest in really their family, and she doesn't even understand it. She really loses patience with the whole team. Eventually, she tries to call the Ravagers to come and get her, and instead gives away their location to Warlock's mother, Aisha. Uh, She then sends Warlock after the team, with the High Evolutionary threatening to destroy the entire Sovereign people if Warlock does not return Rocket to him. The Guardians soon arrive at Counter-Earth in search of the key they need, and they land in a suburban town filled with Animen, human-animal hybrids created by the High Evolutionary on this new, very similar Earth, intended to be a perfection of humanity that doesn't have all of the evil and the problems that the human race suffers from. Drax immediately wallops a small child with a kickball getting the the team in trouble with the locals but eventually they make some friends, they go in and visit a nice family and have some soda they borrow a car and they head off to the giant pyramid at the center of town where they're told they're going to be able to find the guy with the computer in his head who they need to save Rocket. Everyone realizes this is obviously a trap but Peter decides that that's fine, it's not really a trap if you know you're going into a trap, it's a face-off. He turns out to be somewhat correct, because even as the evolutionary is starting to destroy the counter-Earth and have his massive ship lift off into space, Peter manages to kill a number of his assistants, and then Peter and Groot jump out of a thousand or two thousand foot up in the air building and peter uses a root glider to sort of glide himself down with the kidnapped bad guy that has the computer he needs
0: all right yeah this was this was a lot of action in a very short period of time you you had both you had like the a team and the b team a team going in with star lord to actually talk and distract the evolutionary while while well, you know they were also trying to get the key from one of his henchmen, and then you've oh. got got Nebula and the B and team's all supposed to stay back
1: with the ship, and then, then they end up on the, the ship. Yeah. The B and C team, because Drax decides that's not the way he wants to play it, right? And so, yeah, it is an awful lot going on. I like the fact that you do get to see sort of. Just that cockiness of Star Lord, and, and the way that he does things is literally just to figure it out as he goes along. He's like, I don't really yeah. have a plan, but I kind of am the plan, right? As long mm-hmm. as we've got me, it'll be fine. Yep. And Groot with a thousand guns. That doesn't yes. hurt either. A massive killing machine made of wood. so.
0: Yeah, I, I I did love how he turned into a glider as they were uh, as they just basically get get the uh, the recorder computer thing off the henchman's head, nope. jump out the window, and then basically Groot gra- grabs Peter and then sprouts these like glider like wings, uh, and and they just you know land ever so relatively gently on the on this on the on this uh you know in this small stream and stuff and uh it's just it is just crazy
1: yes i i do wish the recorders had actually looked kind of like the recorders that we've seen before like right actual rogelian recorder type recorders if they're going to have them but Uh such is the way um overall this whole part of the movie seemed to be sort of just a, we now have to really up the stakes and move things along. Because not really a lot resolved here, just a ton of stuff blew up, right? Yes. The, literally yeah. the whole planet. Like, here again is how awful this guy is. He's raised this entire wonderful, peaceful group of people, this entire Earth. And then he just destroyed the whole thing. Like, all of yes. his people whose homes that they'd been in and that were watching at the window and whatever, they're all dead. Because he's just like, yep, experiment's over. I'm gonna pull the plug and go someplace else with my new crop. Yeah. They and, they
0: weren't they weren't perfect enough. Yep. So we need to uh which is why he needs Rocket. He's like, Rocket's smart. He's he he's figured out things and isn't like dealing drugs or any of this sort of thing. And he's like, there's all all some of it wasn't just the aggression that needed to be kind of removed from the equation and now there's more things he's trying to figure out how to remove and he feels like the key to it is getting rocket's
1: brain and being able to examine that well and and i think that the other thing is that he he implies that none of his other creations have ever really had any kind of spark of genius either they they've never been able to do anything that surprises him essentially except rocket he's the only one who's ever been able to sort of exceed his master and while that frustrates him it's also what he realizes he needs is to be able to make someone who can make creatures that can do great things themselves and maybe this explains partly why like adam warlock's people are such just bland yeah, sort of sort of yeah sort the of sovereign you know, they they're, yeah, the they're sovereign beautiful are just weird they look perfect but they're just there's not much there for personality there's
0: right just just sort of a flat line there yep. as far as personality goes and that's warlock the... actually
1: ends up having the most personality of all yes. of them and partly that might be because he's kind of a child you know that yeah. he is he is underbaked so that that maybe he will hopefully. Uh, in future movies, he'll keep that, but it would seem that his his race is not super entertaining. Right. So we'll see. In any case, we ready to go to the big the big finale. Yes, let's do the big finale here. As this is all happening, Warlock then is actually shown returning to the ship, trying to grab Rocket, getting in a fight with Gamora. Gamora defeats him. She starts up the ship, she saves Quill, after they've kind of crash landed, Um, and they grab the computer code, which again is literally, quite literally, extracted from the head of the High Evolutionary's Flunky. Rocket feels better, everyone hugs, they head off to save Drax and Mantis, and that gets complicated because those two have discovered a hold full of children. At this point, it then turns into a bit of a rescue mission. Quill calls Kraglin and has him bring the entire skull of nowhere into the space of counter to join in the battle. They take a big shot at the pyramid out of their eye and then crash the skull itself into the evolutionary ship so that they can build a bridge. While this is going on, the reunited team murders many, many Hellspawn and indeed one big Hellpig in an extended hallway fight. Mantis saves the kids by taking them across the bridge created into the... The nowhere skull and rocket finds a bit batch of baby raccoons that he can't leave behind as he tries to save them rocket and the high evolutionary end up facing off in a final battle where as usual rocket is aided by his friends and they end up defeating and killing the high evolutionary quill nearly dies again going back for his Zune device but our heroes all make it out along with the kids raccoons Adam Warlock and a bunch of other random animals some of which are extremely large to be bringing onto another ship the team then goes its own way with Peter deciding he needs to return to Earth to see his grandfather Drax ending up staying to take on the role of dad to an entire population of kids and Rocket taking over as the leader of the new Guardians team
0: that is
1: that cue is, Redbone. yes yes there you go
0: it is, it is. It was quite the the finals final act uh, of this movie. There was so much going on, and a very satisfying, I think, actual final battle with the High Evolutionary, in which it wasn't just Rocket. Rocket started it, but and Rocket ended it. But it <laughs> was it was it was the entire team there to to help to help him with that. Yep, and.
1: Also the just the overall amount of carnage that the guardians kind of put the hurt on these various sort of lackeys of the high evolutionary in this last in this last act there is the almost 10 minute i think scene where they're just they're just going at people in this hallway and a lot of people are saying it's like the greatest hallway scene in Marvel history it, it- i think daredevil is still going to be hard to beat for that to be quite frank but mm. you know, i mean the guardians the, the guardians had a lot more hardware let's put it that way let's uh the, it, it is arguably one of them
0: in, in a in a cinematic universe filled with really great hallway fight scenes the this is up there in like the top three i think i will and i will not argue that it, it, is, it is it is quite something and yeah, it, it highlighted pretty much every member of the team doing what they do best. Lots of just weird camera angles and the motion, things slowing down, things speeding up. I know somebody asked James Gunn specifically about how, what, was he satisfied with how that turned out? And, and was this like the pinnacle of his directing career? And he said <laughs> that it was absolutely one of his pinnacle moments of his directing career is he was very happy with how that turned out. And and I yep. cannot say I blame him for that.
1: No, I agree with that. I absolutely enjoyed it. I think it was interesting to see the way each of the characters did some new and different things. Especially with Nebula, seeing her kind of super arm over the last part of the film as she got to do more and more. Almost like Iron Man type stuff. She had the She had the flying wings early on. I kind of wish she'd had those later. Uh, yeah almost like this weird sort of like unfeathered angel kind of look on the wings she had that was that was pretty cool. so they did a great job of giving you the kind of action moments that you know you're gonna have at the end of a Marvel movie mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like you know other great movies, say like Captain America where it feels like you've got a half hour of just fighting and it's mostly just fighting. There's not really a good idea exactly of any, any real development or seeing anything new. I just yeah. kind of like, that's just a lot of action.
0: It, it doesn't drag at all. And, and some
1: there, there was, there were moments in some
0: of the other like final acts where there's these big battle scenes where it just feels like it just, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. Well, how long can this last? But this, this, I mean, it was very well paced, and there were there were breaks kind of in there because you were flashing over to the over to nowhere, or you were seeing different people. You saw Groot basically save Adam Warlock after he sort of was about to attack him, and then ends up passing out because he's yep. you know t- still not fully recovered from you know th- the his most recent attack and that sort of thing. So there was it was just. Really, really well done, it didn't feel like two and a half hours. You know, no. when you talk about this being two and a half hour film. Obviously, the recap you could tell two and a half hours went by because the amount of things that happened. But it didn't
1: feel like two and a half hours in the movie theater. No, it felt like two and a half hours when I was writing the recap. Here, correct? <laughs> sure. I'm like sure. This, <laughs> this movie took forever. But but as far as when I was sitting there, they could have gone on longer. I would have been perfectly happy. It was. There was no no point at which I'm like, man, I wish this was done. You know? So as it as it finished up, you know, you see Rocket kind of getting a chance to to get his vengeance. They save all the kids. We're gonna talk a little bit about how each character finishes up, but one of the things that I think is really important is over that last half hour or so, we sort of learn new things about or got a new appreciation of a lot of these characters who we'd known for all these movies you know drax gets a new facet to his character that really sort of extends that character out in in powerful ways and gamora you really start to see how there's still a potential for this not to be the character she was before but to be a useful and and worthwhile character in another part of the Marvel universe, almost, you know. Yeah, she
0: she's she's now at the end of this film closer to the Gamora that Peter lost and that we saw through the first two movies than she was at the begin. You know, the the new version of her that that she started out with because she is, she she's kind of prickly. She she is not. Uh, mm-hmm easy to she she's not playing nice with others i guess is the
1: best way of putting it so far she's also got a different family though now so she's going to be you know with starhawk and the sort of original guardian group those ravagers more than being with star lord and and this newer group of guardians so it's it's like she really is in an alternate universe you You know? know it's a very different version of the character but with almost all of them, you just get this growth and you get this ability to see them become a different, and in most cases, I would say a better person than they were before they all met up, you know? Yes. So
0: let's dive in and let's start talking about some things here. So you, so you talked about subverting expectations. Did you have expectations going into
1: this? I did. I had expectations based, I think... In part, just on how these movies work. right? How, how not only a lot of the superhero and Marvel movies work, but how sort of American movies in general work. Right. And a couple of things that I was expecting. One of them was that one of our big heroes was going to die so that it could serve as a rallying point for the rest mm-hmm. of them to mourn around and then somehow pick themselves up and dedicate themselves to avenging their lost comrade And winning the day. And instead. Rocket kind of almost died. At the very beginning. In a relatively simple fight. But he didn't. And they save him. And Quill almost dies at the end. Being a dumbass. But he doesn't. (laughs) And everyone survives. And I think that really. That you know I mean. Obviously not an entire planet of animal men. They all died for our entertainment. But but all of our main characters who we've been with all these years James Gunn had the good sense not to kill any of them right and i I think that takes some restraint in the modern world because you see it all the time mm-hmm. this this sort of sacrifice of big characters to try and and you know add some drama and what he was able to do is just build a story good enough and make us care about the characters enough that you didn't need that sort of Forced shorthand to give you meaning. I already felt
0: gut-wrenched by Layla, by Teefs, by Four, yep. and I didn't know them going into this movie. I don't know that I could have handled another like big character member of the Guardians yep. dying in the in, 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 whether it be in the beginning, in the middle, or even at the end. Heck, I. I am not the biggest Chris Pratt fan, but he actually did a really good job in this film. I think from an acting standpoint, and I think I would have lost it in the theater. If he would have actually died in the,
1: in those final moments, that would have been rough. It it would have been very rough and I'm glad he didn't. And I, I think that that did subvert an expectation of mine. My belief going in was that one or more of them were going to die. And from reading things on the internet, I don't believe I'm alone. Yeah, I think that most people had that feeling. We saw in the trailer. We see
0: Nebula carrying out a a lifeless Peter Quill in the trailer. You
1: just sort of go in thinking, okay, maybe Star Lord's going to die in this one. Yep. And we knew it was the last one, and we knew guns leaving for another company, and everything. There were a lot of a lot of things leading to some worries. Right. Another thing that I thought was was interesting and different is again, American movies usually, the leads find love in the end. You know, that there would have been a lesser filmmaker who would have somehow found a way for Peter and Gamora to get back together at the end. For her to to realize that this is the family that she really needed and that the other Gamora was right and that maybe this Peter guy is worth giving a chance and she follows him off to earth or whatever, right? Uh-huh. Or that... Drax and Mantis who have kind of been doing the most awkward flirting ever for the better part of, of two, three films now, right. Would finally sort of just, I would have to say kind of admit that they're, you know, they're this, this couple, but she's going off on her own and Drax is staying to raise all these kids. And so we don't get that either. They, they, they don't stay together, you know, And I also think that that with Tiefs and Lila and all that, again, there would have been a cheap sort of relief to be given to the audience by having them somehow miraculously having been, you know, resuscitated by the high evolutionary so that he could use them in some nefarious plot against Rocket and then he frees them as well, right? But no, they were just dead. So this movie was in a lot of ways kind of just about coming to terms with what's happened, accepting that you can't change the past and moving on from that as best you can with your life. You know? And, And that fact that you have to go back and actually face off against the past. Rocket had to face the high evolutionary to sort of put that behind him. Peter eventually has to go back and see his grandfather and come to terms with, you know, his mom's death and everything that he's lost with his, his family. With bathroom. his earth, earth, earth family. yeah, you know, yeah. and, and that's kind of what this is about, you know, so I was really happy with it in terms of, it was a very adult way to deal with all of these characters and the fact they love each other. They're a family, but they're also individuals who have to do their own thing.
0: So we talked about this being Rocket's story all along, and even though he was hurt, we, we saw those flashbacks and it this this really felt like a a sort of spotlight on Rocket. And and I and I think he is such an interesting character and I have a much greater appreciation for Rocket now, having seen this movie and i think i will appreciate him more seeing the other movies again now just because having this complete sort of story and the flashbacks and everything james gunn even said somebody asked him is rocket your favorite guardians character and he said yes he by far that's his that's his favorite character and Mm -hmm. and he he was planning from guardians one to have a rocket centric focused film you know we had peter get a lot of focus in the second film we this was this was the same sort of spotlight on rocket his past his friends everything and it was
1: it was so well done yep yeah it and again i think that the genius you know gunn sometimes seems to almost imply that he is somebody who's not really in in some ways a geek on the comics and he does his own thing and he writes a script and whatever, but there is a deep understanding of Marvel lore that was required to come up with what he did. Not just everyone is going to take rocket raccoon and think, you know, what if he was one of the high evolutionary men and then move those together into a story and, and make it this powerful. Because this really is almost like the absolute best of adaptation. Because you're taking these disparate elements from the Marvel Universe and tying them together in new ways that make much stronger, more impactful connections than what's yeah. in the comic books. You know, yeah. Rocket's backstory in the comics is eh. Rocket's backstory in the movies is one of the most just heart-wrenching sort of you know deeply affecting things that you'll ever see in a comic book movie and he's and he's an animated raccoon for heaven's sakes (laughs) yes you know
0: along that same lines i would tell you that after reading the books last week i was kind of meh on the high evolutionary and adam warlock i mean they're characters that are interesting they've got some interesting things going about them but this movie really amped them up. I, I think I think those two characters are are good and interesting comic book characters, but they were fascinating characters in this movie.
1: Yep, I would I would agree, especially the High Evolutionary. I think that yes, the it was so superbly acted. The story that. That they put around that character was was really solid. Just everything about that made him one of my favorite villains immediately in the Marvel universe. Partly because, like I said earlier, he's just super easy to hate, and yeah. there's no subtlety there, you know.
0: So Chuck Wuji Avuji as the High Evolutionary. Just it's interesting because we talk about kind of some of the the big bads or the villains that we've seen in some of these movies and the the level of evil that this character kind of exudes over the course of this film and again i think it's sign of a slow drip and then becomes sort of a torrential downpour by by the mid to end of the film the stakes didn't feel to me at They they didn't feel as big. I mean, we weren't talking about Thanos and the Snap. You weren't talking about Ego, and like him basically trying to redo the entire galaxy. But it still felt very consequential what he was doing. I mean, he blew up a planet for God's sakes of creatures that basically he made, and it was it was just it was so just yes you you just went from a this guy is the bad guy to this guy is evil and i want i I want something bad to happen for him i'm rooting even more for the for for the guardians to get to get this guy
1: yep and that's the the thing about him too is that there's that concept uh that kind of came out of of world war ii of what's called the banality of evil it's kind of like that you know eichmann type of thing and he has a little bit of that where he's like this dispassionate scientist who's just going about doing his work trying to make things perfect. But the level of disregard he has for other creatures and causing pain to other creatures and destroying other lives is just terrifying and, and deeply disturbing. And it makes him just this world-class psychopath. Who is I mean, who is as big a monster as anyone you'll ever see. Because yeah. he doesn't even he doesn't even have the humanity to be able to understand why he's such a monster. Right.
0: So it's such a gun and Avuji worked on making the high evolutionary this dark, irredeemable character focusing on single-mindedness, narcissism, and zealotry, traits that they say are held by some of the most horrific figures of history. So I and it definitely felt like it. And in fact, two quotes that just basically burned into my head when I when I heard them during this movie is one. He says, there is no God. That's why I stepped in. I mean, just oh, my God. okay. And then I'm not trying to conquer the universe. I'm perfecting it. Those are. Those are hot big time evil big time evil statements and you're yes. just like that feels single minded narcissism zealotry in just like in
1: word form there yep no one and, and that is that is exactly it you know, the, the other thing that's interesting there is in the comics he is a human being who eventually ends up essentially evolving himself to right. the level of being essentially a god there's no real indication here that he is human and in fact it almost seems like he is something that is more almost like an elder of the universe rather than than a human being like that this is just a a normal mortal creation seems unlikely when he talks about how long it's been he's been doing things that he's been creating new populations for hundreds of years and all the rest so I do think that they played around a little bit with who this character was. And maybe one of the reasons he, he seems less human is that he is not human. Yeah. He is of some other race of some sort. That so probably I, killed itself off by being a bunch of awful uh, <laughs> psychopaths. Yes. And he's yes. the last one remaining. So yes. there
0: you go. Uh, let's, let's talk briefly about Adam Warlock because he was... You, you want to talk about subverting expectations... I I he definitely did not end up being the type of character I was expecting him to be. You know, we kind of find out that, you know, maybe he was uh removed for, or hatched from the cocoon a little early. So he's yep. basically like a a child in like this ultra powerful humanoid body and yes. like he can fly, he can do all sorts of different things like this and I found him great in this film. Uh, Will Poulter did a, a fantastic job with him. He seemed like you could tell very early on that he like that initial battle, you're like, okay, you know, he went up against the guardians, he showed off what he's capable of, basically beats up everybody, but still ends up getting away uh without rocket. But then you kind of see him interacting with Aisha and and different things I like and you're like whoa <laughs> this isn't quite what i was expecting and he's like he befriends blurp that yep. fuzzy fuzzy uh dog looking thing dog it's true yep yes and, and like he's like protecting it despite the fact that you know Aisha the high priestess doesn't want him to have it and all this and i, I just I found, I found it rather refreshing and and a bit endearing and, and like he was kind of bad guy adjacent to the guardians in this film.
1: Yeah. He was somebody who was obviously too powerful for his own good. He didn't understand what he was doing. So he did accidentally incinerate that one guy. Yes. And then, you know, his mom told him to kill the, the, the dog, whatever his name is. And he was like, I I don't know that that feels right, like kind of like you know, am, are we the bad guys type of thing, right? Where he's yeah. just sort of not sure the way to do it. I do wonder if this is going to be an inflection point for some people on this movie. That if there's going to be a litmus test for whether someone is is looking for something that maybe they don't want, they want to not like about the guardians. I think there's a good chance Warlock will be what takes that flack. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, he is a little bit like the goats from Thor Ragnarok in that he's just this goofy extra addition that's put in there to kind of do whatever. Secondly, Adam Warlock is kind of like we talked about last time. He's he's space Jesus. He is this all-powerful, almighty sort of creature that in a lot of the later stuff ends up being very cerebral and is kind of the guy who ends up having all these big conceptual battles and everything and yes he was just hatched but there are going to be some people who are going to be that's not my warlock and and i will admit that's not my warlock i'm not used to him (laughs) acting this way sure but it but it was fun and there are some times when you go back and look at those early stories, like the first story where he goes down to Earth or to counter Earth, um, where Warlock is kind of lost. He is a little bit like a kid, and he's just learning what's going on. He's, you know, In those stories, he's kind of lost his memory, and he's, he's just trying to figure out how to save the, the planet and stuff. So it works for me. I do think it was fun. It, he was definitely there as, as sort of comic relief. And also to sort of set the stage. So, if they want to bring back the Guardians, they have some extra characters that they can populate it with. Yeah. So, let's talk about the special effects because
0: obviously, this being a cosmic, a Marvel cosmic film, there was the opportunity that there could be a lot of special effects. And by and large, I think the special effects of this film were actually quite good. Fantastic. Yeah. I
1: really enjoyed the special effects. I mean, some of them were dumb, like the big bouncing around on marshmallows stuff in the, in yeah. the multicolored suits and whatever. But they right. were fantastically rendered, goofy scenes. Uh-huh. So and not and not dark. Like they weren't like no, it, you. It's not like you couldn't see things. Everything was really well lit and really well done. Uh, they they seem to have learned a lesson, turned a corner, whatever you want to call it. As far as that
0: uh so james gunn this like week leading up to the movie release was tweeting out these screen tests for rocket for layla and some of the other kind of uh creatures uh from mm-hmm. from like some of rocket's flashbacks that the frame store vfx company did they are so fantastic like the baby rockets like the raccoons and then seeing Layla do this like little dance thing and unbelievable. And, and you can't, and obviously that hallway scene is, is brilliant and there there's no way that that doesn't have VFX in it as well. And it just, it was brightly lit hallway, lots of stuff going on, you know, blasters and, Electroshock things and all this, that you know, Nebula's arm turning into the you know, a sword or whatever. And it was just all of it, start to finish, even the ridiculous stuff was looked ridiculous because it was supposed to look ridiculous, not because it
1: was the effects that didn't look good. Nope, I thought it was all really well done and I really enjoyed it. And that's a long movie with a lot of very complex things. And, you know, I think it's easy to forget also that besides all of the other VFX, you have two full characters that are digitally rendered. One of whom is the star of the movie and our ability (laughs) to get lost in the fact that rocket raccoon is a real, real human being. We care about is absolutely core to this movie working. Right. You know, and how often did you look at rocket and go, that's a well-rendered piece of CGI. You didn't. From like the moment
0: his face first appears on the screen, and it's a very strong close-up or very yep. tight close-up of his face all the way to the end. It was it was some humanoid creature. It was not some VFX that we're watching.
1: Yep. And I think there's two things that I would credit James Gunn for on this. And one is that he seems to have very tight scripts and know what he's doing. So there's less sort of waffling back to try and fix things or change things later in the show than there are in some of them, which means fewer reshoots. And secondly, Marvel just in general has, I guess this isn't gun, but just Marvel has started to, it appears, kind of tone back their plan for releases and outputs from like, four movies and four tv shows a year to three and three and i think that may have given the effects rooms a little bit of time to breathe and actually do what they needed to so that we're getting fully rendered well done cgi at the very beginning i've never believed any of the problems marvel has had has had anything to do with the talent to the people who's doing their cgi it's just that they either haven't They either haven't had the time or they haven't put the resources into getting it done the way it needed to be.
0: Yeah. The, I mean, the interesting thing is like with, with specifically the last two Guardians movies, we've seen both this one and Guardians two. There's like 10 VFX studios that are working on these films. And so, you know, just. I guess bringing in more resources to 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 work on this if you're if this is a big budget film bring in the resources that you need in order to make sure that there's not crunch at the end to try and get stuff in in a film to get it to get it to release date it is it is, and and if you get enough of those then you get stuff like what the frame store is doing and making these just really amazing looking vfx things that you're instead of thinking about how this looks terrible you're like oh my god look at these baby raccoons on the screen this is
1: amazing yes yep no it's every everything they did was good so i i was really pleased with the effects and and even things like you know they make all of these ships and everything like that and they all look cool and whatever but there are very few ships in a Marvel movie that have ever looked cooler than the Bowie did, their new ship, when it's set down in that, in that suburban community. Because yes. there's something about actually getting something that fantastical down into the context of what you actually understand. And you're like, oh my God, that thing's big. Yeah. And then it just looked really amazing uh, kind of within that, that different sort of, of context.
0: So the Guardians films, specifically the second one, I think we talked quite a bit about there being kind of this idea of family, and not only just family as in blood family, but the family you choose, the family you end up being a part of in your life. Yep. And, and this, this very much feels like a continuation of that, of the of those themes.
1: Yep. It is interesting because one of the things that I, I did read from Gunn, uh, after, I think after I took some of these notes even, was he was talking about how the first Guardians movie was about friendship. The second one was about family. And this third one becomes about the self. That, you know, that the first movie is about a bunch of people who are lost, finding friends to kind of help them through. The yeah. second one, that group comes to the point where they love each other so much that they can become a family and really accomplish great things together. And the third one becomes, this is a group of people who care enough about each other and trust each other enough that they're then able to sort of self-actualize within the team because they've got this support system and they learn enough that they can then move off and become what they need to be in their own lives. And that's what the end part is Yeah, that you've got the family that then, you know, they've grown long enough, they're strong enough and they've made each other strong enough that now they can go off on their own, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, somebody going off to college or somebody going off to try and find a new job someplace, something they might not have dared to do if they didn't have that support system and that structure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was interesting. We had Groot's first words that we could understand in this film his the last words Groot says is I love you guys and we actually understand that and I loved the fact that somebody asked James Gunn about this he said why why were we why did he say something different why did he why why did we hear something different and he's like the audience now understands what Groot's saying like all the other members of the team we're now as an audience, a member of the Guardians. That we've been around them long enough and we're a part of the team that we could... Because everybody else understands them. And in fact, Gamora, the the newer Gamora, actually has this transition in the film as well. At the beginning, she doesn't understand what what Groot is saying. And then when they're on Nowhere at the end of the film, she understands what he's saying. And it's the same for us as the audience. He's been talking all along. We just didn't understand him kind of yep. like Drax and the, and the, and the kids. And now we do understand him. And I, and I, that it's such a, such a great sort of message, I think throughout all of this as well. And, and it, it's, it seems kind of cheesy, but at the same time I'm just like, Oh, that is fantastic. And, and it's mm-hmm. like how, how many directors and writers would have come up with something like that? It
1: just, it's, it's amazing to me yep no that is that is pretty cool and it, and it explains it perfectly that's that's awesome all right so one thing i wanted to ask was just some character reflections from you dwayne of of the seven characters who've been around for a long time peter Gamora, nebula rocket Groot, drax mantis which of them do you think sort of had the best arc over the, the course of the three movies. Who who did you like seeing sort of grow or change? Or who did you like the story of the best? Boy, that is... That is tough.
0: Be, well, I I don't feel like it gets fair to Gamora because she's basically a different person than, he, than she was in the first two films. I, I actually think, like, the nebula to me is actually a really interesting character and the the kind of the the growth and becoming sort of a member of the team since since like really the se- early on in the second film and mm-hmm. and and that i think is it was actually really interesting like she is full-on a member to the point where now she's basically going to be leading nowhere going forward and um i wouldn't have expected that when we first when we first saw her uh in in i think the we saw her in the first film right with
1: her and gamora
0: talking to thanos and all that
1: so they were they were fighting in a little but she was definitely the antagonist in that one yes yes so and
0: and you know i think the other character that went came quite a distance is drax i honestly like he gets a lot of flack for being dumb and in fact More jokes about him being dumb in this film as well. But like I feel like by the time he got to the end here and the fact that he was able to communicate with the kids and and everything, I I just liked Drax every time he came on the screen. And he just sort of ended up being in a place that I think really... I think it's where he wanted to be all along. And he just didn't know how to get there. And the fact that he got in with this group and ended up, you know, helping them and they helped him. He ended up getting to where he wanted to be, yep. you know, which is miles away from where he was when we started.
1: You were never a destroyer. You were meant to be a dad. Exactly. Yep. And that makes perfect sense. The reason why that hit like a ton of bricks is because your mind can immediately go back to the very first motivation you ever saw for Drax the Destroyer, which yep. was he was after the guy who killed his wife and, and, and his daughter. Right. Yep. And so it all pulls back. There's no, there's no dissonance there. That's just a completely honest revelation that we all should have probably realized long ago, but just didn't get right. Yeah. I think Gamora is still fair to say she had a, a pretty good arc in the first two movies because she went she went a long way in them and then of course died and then the new gamora what i loved about that was it takes some acting chops to play the same character and make it obvious it's a completely different character so that's true you know zaldana did one heck of a job in this movie but but for me rocket i think came probably as far as anybody I love Drax. Yeah, I think Drax actually is probably my favorite in terms of where it right ended. But Peter and Rocket both had really good arcs. So yeah. as the as the supposed lead and the actual lead, both of them came a lot of ways, so I'm very satisfied. I think they did a nice job. All right, Dwayne, I know you want to talk about the soundtrack. For, I mean, for it's whatever a guardians reason, movie. for whatever reason you think the music is important here so yes. let's go ahead and let's go ahead and talk about this a little tell tell me about the soundtrack so the soundtrack
0: it's interesting right we had two movies guardians films both had really really great soundtracks filled with 70s music right and in this film we had a deviation we had we had you know music from the 80s we had music from the 90s as well as the 70s obviously and then early 2000s we ended ended the film uh with some from the early 2000s and i don't know i really really liked this soundtrack i know my wife actually thinks that this is the best of the three soundtracks and and it's interesting because some of these songs i've heard before right and and like um I am going to think of this movie now going forward every time I hear this music. I mean, I loved. We, we talked about "Creep" by Radiohead as the opening credits. It, it's sort of that subdued, very mellow, almost foreboding sort of song leading into the film as he's walking in. I love "Crazy Crazy on You" by Heart, which is what what's blaring as as Warlock's making his way into into nowhere. Um, Beastie Boys. I never would have thought I heard Beastie Boys in in, in a in a in a, uh, in a Guardians film. We had no sleep in Brooklyn. And I'll tell you what. Dog days are over by Florence and the Machine matched the happiness and the sadness of the moment of the fi- of them, you know, winning but also kind of separating at the end of the film. Yeah. I mean, you have them dancing while Mantis and her obelisks are leaving. You've got, you know, Star-Lord saying, I'm leaving the group and, and we're putting Rocket in charge. They're dancing and yet you're just like also trying to hold back tears and you're happy and it's just, I loved it. And and I am not going to be able to hear that song
1: without thinking about the end end of this movie going forward. Huh. Excellent. Well, I mean, this is, it's always been one of the strengths, right? That is, what the Guardians do better than anybody else is meld music into the moment. What I think is interesting about this one is that it seemed like, in many cases, Gunn was consciously merging the soundtrack with the characters' sort of feelings at the time. Because he was letting them pick the music on the Zune that yeah. would then be what we're hearing as well. Yeah. So in some cases, like when you're hearing Creep at the beginning, that's Rocket choosing to play that song. Yeah. So either he's, he's commenting on how he feels about Quill right at this moment, which was possible, or it just references the fact that through all these years, he's still got that, that problem with his internal opinion of himself. That he wasn't able to save his friends and everybody that he loves dies. And when it comes down to it, he just doesn't, he can't, he doesn't really love or appreciate himself, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that interested me. It did mean that at times I think the soundtrack got a bit heavy handed for me. There were a few times where I'm like, yes, James Gunn, I understand how I'm supposed to be feeling right now. Just leave me alone to feel it. Uh-huh. You don't. You don't have to throw this on top to to sort of make it better slash worse. But yeah, it was. It's hard to really complain. Any anything that ends with Redbone bringing us back to come and get your that love was that that and was and sort of and you know was just perfect. just the parentheses around the entire series. The way we start is the way we end and that that i think was really cool it is another of those things where there's that realization and that sort of of celebration of the meta level of the audience that Gunn has done a good job of it doesn't feel as pandering from him as it does from others it still is every bit as pandering right there's no question uh-huh. But he does it so well that you don't mind. Because right. it's more like, kind of like with the Groot thing. It feels more like being a part of the in crowd, and so you get the joke, mm-hmm. than being somehow just shoveled nostalgia, or being given this moment or, or callback as sort of a, a replacement for good storytelling. Yeah, He's got the good storytelling, but then he also manages to include this stuff that makes you sort of call back to previous times and cements the emotions and the memories.
0: I, I love the nostalgia that I have for Red Bones, come and get your love. I, I love that opening sequence. It reminded me of how much I loved these characters after seeing the first movie. And it did. It felt like a very fitting end um, to this movie as well. So yeah, so Come and Get Your Love was actually a part of the, the mid-credits scene, which is one of two after yep. after-movie scenes that we saw. Obviously, the first one was this new Guardians group on a mission. Uh, headed by Rocket, we have Craglin, Adam Warlock, Groot, Blurb, and... A new, very young member of the team, I think, is Phyla, right? She's she's in the comics. She's a member, has been a member of the Guardians team.
1: Yep. And, she's um, been Captain Marvel. She's been all around. I think she's actually like a, a truly cosmic level power in, right. the, in the Marvel Universe as she gets going. This would obviously be a younger version of that. Uh, and She's got connection to a lot of the other uh guardians in the comics though so she is a member of the team at times and this is absolutely something that makes perfect sense in context
0: yes and and obviously probably setting up for for something we'll probably see that character again going forward i would imagine the other after scene i think is interesting for two reasons one is we see pete returning to see his, his grandfather and they they that was in the movie and they're sitting having breakfast at the table in the morning and you have the, the grandpa talking about mowing the lawn or something like this. And I think the thing that's interesting is, is after that kind of weird slash awkward exchange that where there's a reference to Kevin Bacon being abducted by the way, which was a very nice Easter egg from the holiday special. We have the message. The legendary star Lord will return. Yes. Now I Pratt has been very noncommittal about whether or not he's returning to the MCU. It says if the script's right and it makes sense, he would do it. My question to you is, is there another Star-Lord that I'm unaware of? Could they be referencing somebody else besides uh, Peter Quill? Not that I know of. And in
1: fact, it it technically, if it wasn't for the fact that James Gunn was leaving and that as far as we knew, we didn't really have any particular reason to believe that, that Pratt was coming back. The Legendary Star-Lord actually could refer to a specific comic run. And it would make sense in this context. Because the Legendary Star-Lord is a comic from like mid-2000s, something like that. Which followed Peter Quill's adventures when he left the Guardians. It's like a solo book. Oh. So... I mean, if, if it wasn't for the fact that we had no idea whether you know pratt would even play this character without gun around and whether the rest of us would accept anybody playing this character without gun around it would be an obvious slam dunk that what this means is that there's a star lord solo movie coming out sometime in the near future interesting
0: okay i i thought the wording of that obviously was picked specifically for a reason and i guess we will just have to wait a while to find out
1: what that actually means be sweet if it was like a sitcom it's just him and his dad hanging out like having <laughs> yeah regular normal people adventures kind of so or him and his him and his grandfather i mean so all right so those were the after scenes think from sound of it you've got some tidbits for us what uh what do you have for us sir i do so first off i i i really
0: you actually have in the notes we had a a pretty big name actor in here in one of the secondary roles nathan fillion was in this movie yep and uh kind of felt like he was in kind of the john c Riley sort of role that he that John C Riley was in in the first yep. film uh actually loved it actually just sort of loved it the the nephew the 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 uncle's nephew or whatever bit was was actually fantastic
1: so this is the third time he's been in a guardians movie you know oh really yes he actually played one of the inmates in the first movie. And I can't remember which one, but he's in that big battle scene or whatever. And okay. then in the second movie, he came back, but I think his part ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh. And now this one, he's got an actual like real role. So evidently sure. him and him and Gunn are buddies. So he's another of those people that just shows up at James Gunn's house and ends up getting a part in his movies or something. Sure. So hence. Yeah. But yeah. He's somebody I, I really like Nathan Philly. And I like Firefly, I like Castle. So, sure. it's always good to see him. So, I
0: did find out principal photography for this movie began November 8th, 2021, and working title for the film, we always love sharing these hot Christmas. That was the name, the working title while this was being filmed. Uh I found a note on IMDb that says this film set a record for the most makeup appliances used in a single film having more than 23,000 prosthetics used across over 1,000 actors. Wow. So that's that's pretty crazy. Um, James Gunn based The High Evolutionary and his Counter-Earth on H.G. Wells's dark sci-fi tale, the, Di- the Island of Dr. Moreau. Yep gun is a big fan of one of the adaptations island of lost
1: souls from 1932 so just as a note Uh, here is there a reason why he can't just admit that he based it on say the marvel stories with counter earth and the animen which are exactly what we're just talking about here
0: yeah i don't know
1: why does he have to pretend somehow oh it's H. G. Well,
0: some some high 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 culture th- sort of thing, <laughs> I guess.
1: Literally Marvel stories about almost everything in his plot. That's yeah. lame. Just gonna say lame. All right, proceed. Sure. So this has been talked about actually
0: in some great detail. That Volume Three uh, is the first MCU film to feature a swear word, the F word. In fact, it, it is spoken by Quill. Uh, What you may or may not have heard was that this was not in the original script. Uh, It was an improvisation improvisation by Pratt on Gunn's suggestion and ended up staying in the film.
1: I learned some things about that. Okay. Did you know that with a PG-13 you can have one, right? Yeah, you can have one. But did you know that one of the other things that they generally ask is that it doesn't occur until at least an hour into the movie i did not know that so that if someone like accidentally brings a kid into the movie or whatever that they're not going to be surprised by it early you have to have invested in the movie so it's this is like evidently an hour and two minutes in or something
0: there you there you go so we talked about the nebula holding peter quill that is not actually chris pratt that she is holding they actually made a 35 pound very lifelike looking Peter Quill doll that, that she carried for those scenes. And in fact, it ended up sitting in James Gunn's office for quite a while and was apparently rather unnerving to people that would come by his office and would cause them to, to, he says, scream when, when they would come in, uh, which I, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, Surprise me yeah so obviously there was lots of callbacks to the the first two films and the holiday special we could be here all day talking about them but there was a great thread on twitter uh on i think it was friday or it may have been saturday where james gunn basically said hey if you've got a yes or no question about the film and you want to ask it here here go ahead and do it and I will answer some of these questions And so we'll have a link to the entire thread uh, but some of the some of the interesting questions and answers for this was, was was dog days are over always going to be the song for the final scene? He says yes. is there going to be a volume four? No. Is Rocket in a way a personification of you or a character with whom you feel represented? Yes. Nebula's arm. Is that Bucky's arm from the holiday special? No, it's way better. Was there an actual dog that played Cosmo or was it CGI? No, it wasn't an actual dog. Yes, it was CGI. Does your average MCU Earthling know about the Guardians of the Galaxy? No. Was Rocket's origin story always the plan for Guardians 3? Yes. This is a great question. As early as when you were making Guardians 1, did you already have ideas where Volumes 2 and 3 would go and eventually made them made it into the final films, or were your initial ideas totally overhauled along the way? Yes, they were, and no, they were not overhauled along the way. Did you ever consider inserting any other Marvel character to cross over into this picture? No. And the final question that I also think is really interesting. Have you had conversations with Marvel about their plans for Guardians now that you're done? Yes, he has. So some interesting things from there. There's a lot of others. He definitely does say that there's going to be some people from the Guardians movies that are going to be in some DC Studios movies. He won't say which ones. And finally, I think one last tidbit that has to be shared yes Cosmo is in fact a good dog in case there was any doubt of that yes Cosmo's
1: pretty cool right Mm oh my goodness that's that's interesting stuff yeah again it's nice to see somebody have a plan and pull off the plan and do it in magnificent fashion So Dan, normally we
0: also when we're looking at the movie we talk about some references to the comics. Do you want to
1: want to talk about some references that you saw in the movie? Sure. There there's a lot of stuff in here. Like a lot of easter eggs, callbacks in in even things like signage and the music and even just little quick character moments. So I'm not by any means claiming this is comprehensive. Right. But Rockets' friends, Lila and Walrus or Teefs, uh, actually are from the original comic books. They were friends of of Rockets or, or uh, sort of co-conspirator of Rockets in the in there. Also, Floor probably is a reference to Blackjack O'Hare, who's another one of ah, uh, his yes. compatriots. Eventually, ends up being a uh, sort of a, co- a comp- competition for Lila's affections, and she ends up marrying Blackjack. Uh, Vell, you met you talked about she's one of the kids saved by the guardians and eventually will go on to be a very powerful hero in her own right i like that the original guardians do return you've got staker ogard who's starhawk and his team that are back we last saw them in in guardians 2 when they returned for the funeral Uh, in this run we're going to now see that essentially gomorrah is is with them and she is an old school character as well, so that's not actually that unusual that she would have been seen with that group. Uh, we've got Howard the Duck and some others, uh, including one of the uh, one of the characters who was the guy that uh, Quill tried to sell the the orb to or hanging right. out at, at the table playing poker. The High Evolutionary, mentioned this earlier, he may or may not actually be Herbert Wyndham. It seems he isn't, to me, he probably isn't even human. He could have been on Earth and taken that as an alias for a while. But the traditional origin of the High Evolutionary, which is that he was a human and like a friend of Spider-Woman's dad, and then eventually ended up making himself into something more, seems highly unlikely to be the the origin that we'd see in the MCU. The new uh, sort of blue and burgundy uniforms that they have in this one, very, very strongly influenced by the 2008 comic run that we read a while ago when we were looking, I think, at Guardians 1. Uh-huh. So kind of nice to see them go with that callback. The The uniforms look pretty sharp. And the team at the end with Philovel and Warlock, also pretty reminiscent to some of the more recent runs because they've been regular members of the Guardians in the comics for a while now. So there's a lot of stuff. But a lot of it is just solid sort of callbacks to things that had already been references in the movie that, that get continued like Howard the duck being almost a running gag at this point in the guardians movies Uh, or things that show that more than a lot of the directors in for the MCU Gunn really does reference and sort of honor a lot of the more modern guardians work because he's, he's calling, he's calling in stuff that's just within the last few years in many cases, right. All right, so here we go. I'm a little disappointed going into this one because I <laughs> I see the writing on the wall in the face-off, but uh-huh. we we have now read the comics, we've watched a movie, we're going to take a look and see what our what our pick of the last couple weeks are. So if you have to pick between these two, Dwayne, and if you don't, if you don't feel comfortable making a pick, I'll I'll give you a chance to opt out on this one would you think that warlock number one through eight from back in the 1970s or guardians of the galaxy volume three from 2023 told the story of the high evolutionary and warlock better gotta go with the
0: mcu property here i think i think they they built on a really great foundation that was created by the comics and just amped it up to about eleven. I mean, like I said, they they grabbed these characters that I was kind of middle of the road on, the high evolutionary, Adam Warlock, and even to a lesser extent, I guess, Rocket, and really took them and made them people I really now love and really now hate as a result of this film. Uh it's it was just there was just so much about this film, and, and just so well written that I that I I I think they they were good to the spirit of of the source material, but they did take the source material to another level.
1: Yeah, these were fun. the The movie was just fantastic. It's unfair to the Warlock books, which were actually yeah. a good story, and and as they noted, were. they did, regardless of what you know James Gunn wants to say about. Coming to the realization of this story in a fever dream after reading H.G. Wells, there's no question in my mind that these books are the basis of Guardians Volume 3. I am pleased that I think the books that I introduced you to the last week or so did actually give you a pretty good idea of how the comics dealt with this same story. Yes. And, yeah, James Gunn just did it better along with his keep in mind the comic book guys had like a month and there were three of them and they got paid about probably 500 bucks a piece to do the comic book and Gunn had 250 million dollars and the best artists and creators in hollywood so he had an advantage but nonetheless he took advantage of it because i'm gonna have to agree with you guardians 3 is fantastic yes
0: all right before we wrap it up where are we headed next
1: so, we made a small error along the way. We did. By we, I mean, and Dwayne and also understands, I made a small error in that I forgot Dr. Strange in our list of, or or misplaced him about six months late in our list of movies somehow. So we're going to go back and catch up on him. Uh, and in order to do that, before we watch the Dr. Strange movie, we are going to Read Strange Tales number 110, which is the first appearance of Doctor Strange. We're going to read Doctor Strange The Oath number 1 through 5, which Dwayne chose by doing a Google search of best Doctor Strange books and said, hey, let's do this one. And I I like The Oath, so I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds perfectly good. And then the other one I want him to read a little of is Doctor Strange from 2016. It's the Jason Aaron and Chris Bacallo run which is one of my favorite Doctor Strange runs of the recent past.
0: And with that, that is going to wrap it up for us this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, if you've gotten a chance to see it by now. Which, if you've listened to this, I definitely hope you have. You can send us those comments via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. Or you can reach out to us via Twitter. That address is at comicsovertime. Dan, we had a fantastic movie to look at this week. I am excited to learn more about Doctor Strange. Because he's, I think, a very interesting character based on what I've seen in the MCU. And I love to get that context
1: from the comics. No, i think he is an interesting character he's had a long and sometimes crazy history and we'll get started on it next week and uh see what you think all right until next time everybody please take care take care folks we'll see you next week